0: Hey, everybody, this is Dan Klein of George Mason University. Uh, I am doing an interview with PJ Hill, who is the George F. Bennett Professor of Economics at Wheaton College. He was. He was the George F. Bennett Professor of Econ at Wheaton College for 25 years, retiring in 2011. He is now still working and affiliated with PERC, Political Economy Research Center. Uh, has done a tremendous amount of work on environmental economics, property rights, economic history. Um, And it's a great pleasure to have you here, PJ. Thanks for joining. Good to be on. Cool. So the topic for our conversation today is your wonderful Journal of Institutional Economics paper, The Religious Origins of the Rule of Law. Mm -hmm. Very uh, remarkable paper. Um, let me say very briefly, I see it as injecting the sort of Christianity element as a, as a, as a theoretical um, matter into the narratives of economic history, the narratives offered by people who we associate perhaps more narrowly with economic history. Would you say that's an apt description and can you sketch the general narrative you're offering?
1: Mm-hmm. Uh, I would broaden it. I would say it's both Jewish and Christian uh, mm-hmm. and the Jewish element uh, later in history because the Jews are oftentimes more of a persecuted minority within societies, perhaps doesn't have as strong an influence on, say, uh, the, uh, Western Europe, but nevertheless, I would say it's both Jewish and Christian, but it's the idea of universal human dignity and the argument is that that's a fairly unusual concept if you go way back in history. People are, are want to always engage in what we call othering, seeing people as different than themselves. It may be race, it may be ideology, it may be ethnicity, it may be uh, ge- geography. But most through most of history, people saw people that weren't really like themselves as very different. Um, and so that meant that they didn't come under the same sorts of rules or the same sorts of concepts. And so as I look at economic history, and particularly in a crucial part of economic history that we will probably get to, the beginnings of modern economic growth, I just see the concept of uh, universal human dignity or hu- a moral agency as crucial. And I, seeing it, I see it as being grounded or rooted in uh, g- Jewish and, and Christian theology. So that's that's the basic story. Um, we'll come back to, mo- to more parts of it, but I just think that the idea of human equality, which is just generally accepted now in most of the West, um, was not that was not the case a, a couple of thousand years ago. It was a rather unusual sort of a con- concept. And so I just think we need to, to try to tease out where did this come from? And I find Uh, the Jewish Christian story as really important for understanding uh, where it did come from.
0: So the core concepts there that you introduced or the core uh, expressions were I think human equality and universal human dignity. On my end of the recording, it broke up just a little bit there, but I think that's, I think we're okay. Um, I've been lately reading Seed and Top uh Mm -hmm. and uh i see a lot of you know obviously new sites even top so and and Mm -hmm. this whole line of reasoning um makes sense to me but can you say a little bit more about those core concepts human equality universal human dignity and a little bit more about this new emergence of, uh, of a philosophy of that, which then, you know, becomes universal to humankind.
1: Right. It's basically, um, maybe I would say it's the idea of um, of natural rights, if you will, or uh, it's rooted in natural law. Uh, you use the concept from Adam Smith as community of justice. It, fits very well with that, the protection of the person and their property, and then that protection being instantiated in a legal framework so that um, all people can have those things protected. Now, that's never worked perfectly. Uh, It certainly didn't work uh, perfectly in societies that we think of as deeply influenced uh, by, say, by Christian thought. There were many Christians who held slaves through a period of time. but gradually over time, the idea of universal dignity, that people should be equal before the law, and in particular, the concept of identity isn't crucial to your standing before the law. That uh, it's, it's what Barry Weingast calls impersonality, that the law treats you as a person, but not a person with a special class identity, racial identity, uh, income identity, those sorts of things. So that's what I mean by universal human dignity. And then also I mean uh, universal uh, moral agency that people are responsible
0: um, to make moral decisions. All right, and as far as sort of domains for that kind of reasoning or you know, principles would go, there we today live within a fairly integrated polity and we think about those kind of principles of equal human dignity equal uh, human equality applying within the polity right and then of course there's the issue of what about the rest of the people outside the polity
1: mm-hmm.
0: um so, so do you want to speak to that? Uh, is that does that fit into your story? Well,
1: I would say that it is a it is a claim that goes beyond the polity, but different polities have different ways of expressing uh, expressing that. Um, and uh, if you take, um, take uh, North Wallace and Winegast, uh, there. Um, their major book, Violence and Social Orders, they would claim that a large portion of the world in a sense lives outside of what they would think of as universal dignity or uh, rule of law uh, Mm -hmm. for everybody. And and there's other people who would say the same sort of a thing. Uh, Gary Haugen uh, is a lawyer who works with an organization called International Justice Mission. And he claims that in much of the world, for instance, say you're in the bottom 30% of the income distribution, your chances of going to court and getting a contract enforced uh, fairly, are pretty, uh, they're, they're pretty small. That, uh, the court system is just uh, not open to everybody. Now, again, you can argue in places like uh, in Western Europe and the United States, they're not perfect in those sorts of ways. But you can make a moral claim. And people listen to it. I think it's interesting that the whole Black Lives Matter movement is just a a claim of human equality. It's based on that sort of a concept.
0: Okay. Um, I wonder whether your own religious and political beliefs are worth expressing here. Would you care to share either of those?
1: Sure. I think it's it's important uh, to to know where people are coming from. I am uh, a Christian believer. That means that I think there is a God of the universe that loves us and wants to give good gifts to us. And one of those gifts is the person of Jesus Christ. Um, I would say that my article is not an apologetic for the truth or the falseness of those claims. Uh, It's it's really talking about uh, what was the influence of those claims kind of on the political economic system. So that's my belief structure. And there is, of course, the question of, um, you know, is there some sort of confirmation bias as I come to this? Because this fits with what, I say, well, Christianity is really important. And I'm a Christian. So that kind of, Mm -hmm. that is a nice fit. I would say it's been important for me to find scholars who don't share my particularly My particular religious perspective, who would say the same sorts of things about the influence of Christianity uh, over time. For instance, Luc Ferry, the the French philosopher, makes a very explicit claim about how important Christianity is to a brand, he says, a brand new, meaning 2,000 years ago, claim about the worth of all people. And Ferry is also, sometimes he calls himself a secular humanist or an atheist, There's a recent book by Tom Holland called Dominion. uh, Mm -hmm. And that book makes strong claims about how different the world is today, all of Western civilization, because of Christianity. And then you're never quite sure where Holland is in all of this until at the end of the book. He says, well, it really had a big influence. I don't believe it. You know, I mean, Uh you know, and for me, he makes a statement that this was a huge historical force, does he, think, does he think that the claims of Christianity are true? He says, no, I don't think they are. <laughs> so that you can separate out in a sense. Uh, so in some sense, I am working in a field that makes me more comfortable because I'm claiming influence for Christianity. Um, I would say there's a lot of other people who have made similar claims that don't share my particular uh, belief. Politically, I would say I'm a classical liberal. So I fit in the sense of, Thinking that um, individual rights are pretty important, and one of the major functions of government is to define and enforce and those rights, uh, protect people. And you quote from uh, Adam Smith's Theory of Moral Sentiments, uh, you know the, that great passage about what is justice, and well, it's protection of the person and protection of their property, mm-hmm. and that's pretty much where I fit in terms of my my political views also.
0: Uh, when I studied the Seed and Top book, I taught, I did a, a reading group on it. So I studied it quite carefully. I came to the conclusion that he probably too is not a Christian. So you you could add him to the list.
1: Right, I wasn't sure. He certainly doesn't make any claims. I mean, he doesn't base that at all upon personal claims. And I don't know much about him. I When I discovered the book, I was quite, I read through it and uh, found it to be quite persuasive. Um, I did go to a couple of other political theorists and say, you know, is this a legitimate author? What should I think of him? Because I really hadn't run into him before. And their answer was, yeah, he is a, an important intellectual historian. So, uh, I don't know anything about him personally, but he certainly doesn't write his book, uh, yeah. as an expression, as, as an outgrowth of any sort of a faith commitment on his part. So I, I don't really know.
0: The the passages that stick out in my mind, or the two things that stick out in my mind, is first of all, in presenting the you know, tremendous importance of Christianity, he actually says very little about Jesus and he mm-hmm. kind of says like we don't really know anything about it and just didn't sound Christian the way he handled that. That could be. And the um, other thing is at the end of the book, he says something to the effect, I think it's that liberalism is the greatest gift of Christianity, or something was the greatest gift. Mm-hmm. And you wouldn't think a Christian would say that either. I mean, even if they thought liberalism was a great gift of Christianity, they would never say the greatest. And he also says that
1: you can get it, you can get the benefits without the, the faith commitment to actual to Christianity. And again, you don't know if that's uh, a personal statement or not, but he says you, you can have the ontology of liberalism without the actual components of say, of of Christian faith. I would say that the new book by Tom Holland does uh, make much more of the person of Jesus Christ. And his question is, how could somebody who ended up in such a bad state uh, end up influencing the world so much? So his has a more more attention to the person of Christ, Uh. even though, and, and, and he keeps asking the question throughout history, how can it be that this defeated person keeps getting all of these adherents, and then they keep getting defeated in some way in lots of different situations, but then he would still end up by saying Western civilization is at root uh, a Christian society in terms of uh, much of its belief structures, not necessarily in terms of what we would call a faith commitment.
0: Right, right. I think those belief structures are the largest part of the story. And again, I find it all very persuasive. So I'm like with you and Seed and Top and all this. Um, I do have to say something about the story of Jesus. I also think the story of Jesus is like really does, this is a good way to kick off a government skeptical outlook. right? (laughs) Um, But anyway, so your piece is like very much this wonderful big think piece, big picture economics. And it's dealing with econ econ historians and people who don't necessarily, you know, read St. Augustine, Um, but they write their theories about the modern state and so on, but then you're bringing in these other um, authors like Top and so on. So, and I know that your own background is is generally more like microeconomic economic history and property rights and so on. A lot of great stuff with Terry Anderson and so on. So the question is, how did you come to write this?
1: Well, basically, because I'm an economic historian. And if you're an economic historian, you cannot ignore what Deirdre McCloskey calls the great enrichment. And, you know, just something that economic historians have to think about. So I spent a lot of time thinking about it. I taught it in my classes. Um, You know, basically, the idea that through up until around 1800 most of the world is basically poor. Now that doesn't mean there aren't places that have pockets of wealth, doesn't mean that there aren't some empires are pretty powerful, but then there's just just this huge change. And up until then, there is no society that has sustained increases in economic well-being for the ordinary person. And then you start to get it. And so that's just a big question. So that's always been an issue for me, um, how do I explain it? And of course, a lot of people that are smarter than me have worked on it. You can look at the Asimoglu and Robinson books. Deirdre McCloskey has his great three volumes. Uh, you know, uh, Bourgeois Virtues, Bourgeois Dignity, Bourgeois Equality. Eric Jones uh, has written about it. I found the North Wallace and Wine Gas volume to be uh, very helpful, it basically goes back to institutions and getting the rules of the game right. But when they list, they talk about the natural state or what they mean as the limited access order. And they say that's just dominated the world. It's been in different sorts of forms, but there's dominant coalitions that control the order and access is limited um, by one means or another to say contract enforcement, to some of the means of production, to certain privileges. And then you get the, the, uh, they call that the natural state, and then you get the open access order. They would argue that Britain and the Netherlands are the first countries to get it. And again, we can argue about dates, uh, the Netherlands a little bit before England, but probably around 1800. The interesting thing for North Wallace and Weingast, when they list those conditions, and this is what struck me and got me to thinking more about it, was they say that under the limited access order, there was the the belief that people are not equal. And when you get to the open access order, the one that produces economic growth, they say there's a general belief in human equality. Well, that struck me and I was interested in that. Uh, They don't explain much more about it. They only spend about one paragraph on it. Um, But that caused me to think more about, okay, how important is that belief structure? Um, There's a a uh, religious historian by the name of John Whitty at Emory University. He came to Wheaton uh, because, uh, to speak because he was coming. I read a couple of his volumes, uh, and he kept talking about all the arguments about rights that occurred in the 16th and the 17th century. A lot of those came from religious thinkers, from Calvin, from Luther, uh, from Johann Altheus. So I read his things, and, so, and then I read Sedentop's book. And so by doing, by thinking about all that, and what I came to the conclusion was there was one part of the story that wasn't told well enough. And it was the connection between the concept of human equality and rule of law and economic growth. So that's when I got kind of to move from talking about smaller issues. I'd written about property rights in the American West, uh, d- development in all, in uh, on the frontier, uh, a little bit about religion, not much there. So this was just a a brand new effort that didn't happen overnight. I had to do a lot of reading over a a decade to to do it, but that's why I moved to do it. I just thought there was a a bit of a hole there. We needed more of an explanation of the ideas that are important. Now, of course, McCloskey is one of the great contributors to the whole concept of ideas.
0: Sure. That's that's exactly my impression is that you're you're completing, you're, you're filling in more with uh, where did these ideas of human equality, rule of law, like how did it percolate up and what were they? And Christ, Ju- Judeo-Christianity is just such an important part of the story and mm-hmm. such a salient when you start thinking and looking at it, uh, which those other authors. So you're kind of bringing together different kinds of authors, I would say, in a really nice way. That's great. Um, the title of your paper has in it the rule of law. I think it's about the emergence of the rule of law. Mm-hmm. And one of the issues that always comes up here is, is, is you know, is the meaning of this and mm-hmm. in, in relation and always in my mind is and how does this author define liberty as well? Mm-hmm. Um, now I, I, would have my own ways of going about that, but, um, I thought I would ask you yours. Right. Liberty yeah. and the rule of law. How are they related and dif- distinguished?
1: Well, rule of law can, as, as you know, can mean a lot of different things. And I would go back to, to your explanation of Adam Smith and justice, uh, community of justice. For me, that's what rule of law is. It's protection of the person and their property, uh, and promises made. Uh, and that's, so th- that's where I would put it. I'm trying to connect it just with the general institutional economics literature, which uses the term rule of law. I don't know if they have exactly the same understanding uh, that I do there, but, but liberty basically means, if you will, uh, natural rights. I found Brian Turney's uh, work on natural rights to be quite persuasive. And I just see that as the, as the fundamental component uh, of the rule of law. So it's equality before the law, it's access to the law, but it's also just a belief structure. And that's where McCloskey is important because she says, just looking at the ordinary person and saying, well, that person is okay. Uh, and, and so that's, uh, going with that. I would say with regard to the other explanations, um, of the origins of the rule of law, I'm not really contesting any of those, uh, you know, a couple of your colleagues, uh, Noel Johnson and Mark Koyama have written on uh, religious liberty. Uh, there's been a lot of other work. So I'm not saying that any of those people got it wrong. I'm really adding to their
0: mm-hmm. work, and
1: saying, you know, here's another thing we've got to think about. And it is that sort of belief structure, and particularly this belief structure of human equality that is just so generally accepted Today And I would say that in today's world, it, it doesn't matter if you're a Christian or not. So I'm making an argument for the influence of Christianity uh, on the whole concept of, of universal human dignity. Uh, but this is not an argument that, um, well, you have to believe in Christianity to believe yeah, yeah. in equality, because that's pretty much, a, a, in the West, it's a generally accepted idea, and people just make start their arguments usually with that as the basis for it.
0: Okay, so so in my mind, there's sort of the issue of the definitions and the relationship of the two concepts, liberty and rule of law. Mm-hmm. And then of course, there are the questions, historical questions about explaining the emergence and so on. Um, but I gather over here on the definitions question, you're, you kind of associate liberty and rule of law quite closely. Right. Um, okay, okay. Uh, the, for my own part, let me just say um, I think rule of i I tend to think of rule of law as some kind of hey here 's the website with all the rules and it's it 's like out there and common knowledge and mm-hmm. and broadly speaking they they 're actually enforced as written mm-hmm. um, although you know of course they don 't enforce everything really and you'd want to make some soften things a bit about that. I mean, if they don't enforce the 55 mile an hour speed limit, I don't really think we consider that a breakdown in the rule of law. But so you have the website with the rules in a sort of integrated polity. with, um, and I think the relationship, I do think it's very, that definition by itself is quite distinct from liberty, which is the flip side of commutative justice. Mm -hmm. In other words, the government not so much messing with your stuff.
1: Right. Right,
0: um, but I think there is an intimate relation empirically because when the government strays a lot from, na- you know, the system of natural liberty or or rather liberal order and puts a lot of complex crazy stuff on that website, it's not common knowledge and it's not lived up to, and it's not enforced as written and you don't even know how to really interpret it very often. So there is, I think, a relate a strong relationship between the idea of like, yeah, the ru- the law actually works as a system of rules in practice in society and that system of rules being rather classical liberal.
1: Right, yeah. yeah I don't want to expand the rule of law to mean whatever the government says. That, that yeah. Is, that's not what I think of as the rule of law. And in fact, I would argue that the more complex uh, the rules become, uh, the less likely it is that they're going to be equally enforced. And the more opportunity there is for special interest pleading or what economists call rent-seeking, that it's uh, as as the rules start trying to solve too many day-to-day problems, uh, we find that self-interest finds its way into the legal system, and it's it's, uh, less effective. So, yes, I go with what I would call a limited concept for rule of law. It's just basic, basic liberty. And you can summarize it by uh, community of justice, or I I use the term negative rights, uh, rather than positive rights, to try to capture what's going on there.
0: All right. Uh, Well, a very big question for um, Seedentop and for you, which you deal with explicitly. Is the why did it take so long? Right. Question. Because yeah. we're talking about Judeo Christianity giving rise to the Great Enrichment. Well, there's like, you know, some passage of time from beginning right. to end there. Yeah. Um, so do you want to comment on why did it take so long?
1: Well, you know, any explanation that I come up with is going to sound kind of like an after the fact sort of an explanation. Um, there were a lot of things going on in Western Europe, you know, 1500s, 1600s, 1700s, crises uh, the beginning of, I don't know if you will, uh, lots of political theory, writing about well, how should we organize these sorts of societies. And there was a lot of competition among these different states uh, after the Treaty of Westphalia in 1648 you, and you, got, you get the idea of state sovereignty. So you get these competing areas. So that all makes a difference. One of my explanations is that just the way the history was for a long period of time, the church or the, spoke, the major spokespeople for Christianity were also, in a sense, a part of what North Wallace and Winegast called the dominant coalition. Uh, in other words, the church had, a, it had access to uh, coercive power. And that just happened to be the way, say, from around 500 on, uh, that the world existed. And that, I think, meant that it, it, um, it dulled some of the influence of the ability of the church to argue for equal human dignity because of the relationship between the church and state, Uh, the state could be used against heretics. Uh, The state could be used to try to enforce particular doctrine. And so that broke down with the Protestant Reformation in uh, 1517. Now, my argument, I'm a Protestant, but my argument is not (laughs) that the Protestants discovered human equality. Uh, I would say it's the same doctrine in canon law, say from 1050 to 1300 was a, g- a real formulation of that. But it was after you kind of get this breakdown in religious monopoly, you get lots of competition. The different, different states become either Catholic or Protestant or a lot of movement or a lot of chances for ideas to come out during this period of time. And so it becomes just a period of just really strong intellectual ferment. And then, you know, you get get a John Locke before him, you get, you know, you get Montesquieu. So there's all the Enlightenment writers. Now some people would say that it's the Enlightenment writers that came up with the idea of human equality. Um, I don't think so. I think they were using it and they used it in different sorts of ways, but it was generally a part of most of the things that they wrote about. There were some, some counter voices. There was a, um, one guy in the name of Filmer who wrote, uh, on the divine right of monarchs and he defended that. Well, that's not a human equality argument. That's a human inequality argument, but most of the writers with some very different ideas about how you organize society Generally started with this idea of human equality, so I see what was going on in Western Europe, the political ferment, uh, the separate states, uh, the religious competition, all of that, and of resulting then uh, between 1750 and 1800, 1820, uh, the beginnings of what we would call kind of the, the modern liberal order.
0: Okay. Yeah, let let me let me try to run it back and tell me if you think uh, I'm just putting it my my way as well. I mean, I think the dovetails. But um, so the, the, I think the, the the important one of the important messages in all this is that this Judeo Christianity human equality thinking mm-hmm. is is arguably necessary. Let's say necessary, but not a sufficient right. condition. And so it's it's these kind of broad ethical and moral ideas that mm-hmm. have to be then translated into practice and jural right. definitions and relationships and institutions and political and so it's a great way to go you know far there's very far to go from from, from as it were paul and augustine to um you know 1800 right And as you say, and I'm pulling together both what you say and you know what I draw from Seedentop because I think he agrees, this whole idea, this whole issue of, well, you've got this sort of like this magic potion, if you like, that the church is custodian of, but it's not necessarily working its magic, partly because churches do get submerged within the political order or so. You use the word entangled, entangled. Uh, Seaton Top at one point uses the term submerged,
1: okay.
0: um, and so it just takes a long time for the magic, as it were, to kind of find the right moment, and that's where that political competition kind of issue and the you know the small you know the different states of Europe uh, and so on. So it's hard it's hard to sell people on the why it takes so long explanation, especially in like an article like yours. Right. But when you read through the chapters of these books, and they kind of say, this is what happened, you know, in the middle of the 11th century, and, and you say, yeah, that would take long. No. You know what I mean?
1: And it, and it takes, a, you talk about uh, the Jural area, and, and that's really crucial. You know, you've got you to somehow get these ideas into, jur, into that jurisdiction uh, to go there. Let me add one quick caveat here. You, you talk about, you say that I'd say that Christianity is necessary, but not sufficient. And that's certainly, that's my argument for the beginnings of modern economic growth. That it, I don't think, I mean, I think history shows us it's, it's not necessary for economic growth everywhere. I mean, you get, you get, following the beginnings of modern economic growth in England the and Netherlands, and Northern Europe, Western Europe, then you get economic growth in Japan, you know and clearly not a Christian nation. You get Singapore, uh, you get Hong Kong, you get South Korea, um, some with more influence of Christianity, some with less. You get Chile in South America, you get Botswana. So the argument is not that, uh, well, you better be Christian if you're going to get economic growth. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. It's, It's more that as we look back historically, Christianity was very important for this development an instantiation of the idea of human equality. And now, a lot of people, are, I would say that's in most of the West, you will find almost all political arguments start with this kind of egalitarian picture, if you will. I don't mean egalitarian in terms of outcomes, but egalitarian in terms of, uh, uh, I mean, the whole in the whole Black Lives M- Matter uh, movement, was almost nobody saying, I didn't hear anybody saying human equality isn't important. I mean, that was just the starting point. And so then the question was, is our society carrying out injustices? uh, And I think we were in terms of equality sorts of issues. And many of the people involved in that would not say that they're Christian, don't accept Christian precepts, but what they do accept is this universal human dignity argument.
0: Yeah, so that's kind of a Christian-derived precept, right. is right. the claim. You don't have to be Christian, of course. Um, yeah. And the e- examples of you know 20th century Japan or even 19th century Japan, uh, perhaps. And um, I'm getting a little sign here about unstable connection, but I hope we're okay. Um, or Ma- you know Singapore today and so on. I mean, you could you could, uh, y- presumably you could say that they're borrowing now the whole tradition that mm-hmm. we're kind of talking about coming out of the Judeo-Christian experience. Um, okay, cool. Um, so let me just turn to a couple of our other questions. I circulated these to you before. Let's look at number seven. Um, what, what was number seven before we added one? <laughs> you suggest that uh, Curious Religion, a Religio, that is, whose realm, whose religion, his realm, his religion, made for competition between religions, reducing the sway or standing of relig- that any one religion had with temporal powers. Now, when I first read that, I thought, well, why, why would that be? I mean, it's still a religious monopoly, but... I guess one can argue that now the temporal powers are prepared to sort of swap in some other guy's right. system, kind of like in contestable markets. Is mm-hmm. that, um, that? That fits very well with my ideas. And of course, as uh, as an
1: economist, <laughs> competition is just a very powerful force. And it's competition, uh, or sometimes it's just a threat of competition, as you say, contestable markets uh, theory. that. Mm-hmm holds people, if you will, to maybe to their ideals, or holds them to not be as exploitive, uh, because there's somebody else that can come along. And so I just think the, the actual political fragmentation of Europe and the, the whole idea that, um, yeah, so you are a, a lord or a ruler of a particular area, and you get to choose. You know, Do you want to go with one religion, do you want to go with another? And there, so that, I think that was actually very healthy for the religious establishment. So it's, again, one of the questions is, was it the particular geographic political makeup of Europe that was important? I think it was of importance, uh, you know, in, in allowing these sorts of ideas uh, to be expressed. So that's just one of those forces, uh, hard to figure out how important but just this great turmoil, um, you know, 16th and 17th, uh, 18th century, all these ideas are, are being argued about, um, but you're, you're getting to also see them in practice, and you're getting to see them in practice under different realms. And so I think that kind of trying it out, seeing how it works, and even knowing if for at least a certain portion of the population, uh, there was some mobility. So, you could leave you know in in many parts of Europe, it wasn't that far to another regime, now, of mm-hmm. course, lots of people weren't mobile, but the threat of mobility uh is very helpful in terms of putting some sort of limits on uh, say the power of the ruler so I would say the kind of the theory of contestability uh does um,
0: this grabbed me pretty well. And I said, yeah, that's what's one of the things that's going on. So by the 16th, 17th century, I mean, I think you would say, and I think Sedentop suggests that the, the Christian moral intuitions are actually pretty well established in Christendom. Mm-hmm. And, and then the intellectuals, whether they understand it, recognize it or not, are actually taking those up and moving forward, maybe without being theistic. In right. some cases,
1: mm-hmm.
0: um, and then the the church wanes, of course, in importance. Uh, je- a- a- and you speak of its legitimating function to this mm-hmm. to the government to the state power, and that that legitimating function increasingly came from parliaments. Right. Uh, I think that makes a lot of sense, and it certainly certainly seems to fit the course of history. Um, I just, you know, something you don't say much about, and I'm kind of surprised that it doesn't get more play in some of this literature, because I haven't seen it much, is the printing press mm-hmm. in terms of, um, you know, preventing, breaking up the, a, a kind of a, oppressive church role, right. uh, and, in, and entanglement and so on, because with the printing press, all these different interpretations can so readily eat away at the dominant interpretation and you get you're just going to get you don't even have to move to the uh, to net to the netherlands you can just secretly you know smuggle in your books and read those and have conversations quietly with your fellows kind of thing
1: mm-hmm. and i would say that i probably underplay it i, I don't give it enough uh credence uh certainly um with the the coming of the Protestant Reformation, one of the things that made it spread so rapidly was the printing press. I think by about, oh, 15, 20, 25, there were 30,000 pamphlets had been published. Well, that's just huge, you know? And of course, the thing that goes along with that is increasing literacy rates. Uh, More and more people start to be able to read uh, because there's a lot out there to read. And so the printing press is certainly just one of the, the major vehicles in adding to this debate. And I was just, I was struck as I read through the literature about just how vibrant this debate in the 15 and 1600s were about well, what is man, if you will, meaning humans. Uh, what rights do they have? How should they be organized? What's the role of the polity? Uh, and so it just becomes this, you know, I thought of John Milton as a poet. Well, Milton was this guy writing in England who just published pamphlet after pamphlet saying, yeah. oh, these rights are rights for everybody. They're not just for under one polity, they're they're universal. And, and so there were people like that that were making those uh, sorts of arguments. And I think it's in the 1600s, you get about 20,000 different pamphlets that are printed. And so that mm-hmm. you're right, the printing press is just a crucial way of doing that. And no longer do you get a lot of your ideas directly from the church. You, you get it from all sorts of different sources. Mm-hmm. So I would say that in some sense, I stand corrected, or if I were to write it again, mm-hmm. I, I would probably give more uh, more attention to the printing press and its impact on intellectual ferment. Uh, yeah. All that's going on. Of course, the other thing that's happening is, um, you know, from the oh, late 1500s to 1648, you've got the religious wars. And that's a big thing too, because now all of a sudden you've got these groups, interestingly enough, who both claim universal dignity, going out and killing <laughs> this other group, who you supposedly think has human dignity, and so that that's very bothersome for people that are thinking about that, and they're trying to figure out a way, you know, it, is it possible for us to live together, and is it possible for us to live together in peace, and so what we think of as political theory is in some sense answering that question. Now Hobbes, of course, answers it by saying, well, the only answer is kind of an unlimited state. You're not going to get peace unless you just give. Great power to the state. Um, I think he's wrong, but uh, that is one answer. Locke comes along, says it's no, it's possible to do it uh, with a more limited state. You get Smith, you get Hume, um, that basically are giving us answers about how it's possible to live together in peace. And part of that's a, that part of that's a response to these great periods
0: of conflict. Mm-hmm. Um, You just mentioned a bunch of authors who are all British Um, and of course Britain plays a central role in the later part of the story uh, without question in my view. Um, Have you thought much about how island geography figures into the central role that that Britain uh, comes to play in all of this?
1: I've read some about it and I think it's probably important. I'm, I can't articulate that any better than some of the other authors have. It does mean that uh, you, know, uh, you are somewhat protected from ideas, from, from, I mean, it's more expensive to invade Britain than it is to invade, you know, from the, than say, say, from Spain wants to get out of country. They may choose France over Britain because Britain's a lot harder to, you have to you have to be able to transport goods and services uh, across the English Channel, mm-hmm. so it's it's important. It um, this whole idea that there's English individualism that kind of starts earlier uh, than it does in other parts of Europe. Uh, again, I'm not. Um, okay. I, guess, I think it's probably important, but I don't uh, I don't know enough about it to say England does end up organized somewhat differently at the the local government level. And it ends up with more power at the local government level than, say, what we call Latin Europe, which would be Spain and France. Part of it's the way of raising revenue, state revenues. Um, But again, it could go back to this whole idea of kind of uh, island geography. But it's not something that I would say that, I have a, okay. a fairly well-informed opinion on it. It's more just, um, being, well, that's an interesting uh, that's something interesting.
0: Yeah, I have some notions about it, but uh, let's not go there.
1: But the other um, interesting thing, of course, is that the Dutch actually preceded the English in terms of you know, what we would call the modern liberal order, and they're they're a part of the continent. So
0: yeah, and they didn't sustain it as well and develop it as well. <laughs> um, Although, of course, you know they're outstanding. Um, Okay, there was a couple other questions I, I, I drafted here. I don't know. If, um, there was a couple. You know, uh, you you take small issue with Deirdre McCloskey on a couple of points. I don't know if it's worth talking about those. Let me quote you here. First, she sees the move to human equality as occurring over a relatively brief period, 1517 to 1789. I posit that it was a much longer process. Um, yeah, does she really see it? I guess, th- is that is that how she sees it?
1: Yeah, that's the date she gives and she doesn't think that Christianity had um, a lot to say, about, say, the political order, or doesn't seem to think that the idea of human equality before the Protestant Reformation is very influential. And I, I think I disagree with her there. Um, I don't see, see for me, the Protestant Reformation brings in a whole bunch of new ideas. But with regard to human equality, it's, that's not one of them. It's always been a part of, of Christian thinking. It's- so, so so, I would disagree with her in terms of that date.
0: So is she disputing that there's something distinctively Christian or Judeo-Christian? Is that part of her objection here? Like what, what the, the, you know, it's not like you needed, it, it's just out there in human culture, going back before, mm-hmm. even before Christianity, the idea of human dignity, human equality.
1: Well, she thinks that the idea of human dignity really doesn't become a very important idea until you know the 1500s, 1500s, 1600s, and she just talks a lot about what she calls rhetoric how do, you, how do you talk about people? How do you think about people? And she sees a lot of change at the just the ordinary level of, of, the, of the regular working person are they seen as a person of honor or not? And I, I agree with her in all of those sorts of things. I, I just have found her a very, very helpful scholar in those areas. So that's an area, um, she would just say that yeah, Christianity doesn't have a lot of influence on the organization of society prior, say, to the Protestant Reformation. And it may well be that she thinks that that, com- that competition that we talked about does turn out to be important. The other area that where she and I do disagree okay. is, what about rule of law? And what about property rights? And she keeps saying to me, well, PJ, but there was rule of law in China. There were property rights in many other countries. And I I think, well, not in the sense that I'm talking about it, not property rights for everyone, not rule of law that tries to respect all humans. Uh, One of the important concepts of both Jewish and Christian thought is, individual moral responsibility. I mean, why, why was God mad at the Jews at the time? Because they were individually disobeying what he told them to do. And so uh, the Jewish idea and the, the whole idea of Israel was predicated upon the idea that there's some things that you are individually morally responsible for. So people individually. And that means that you are of worth if you can decide Yes or no. And so that's just a disagreement about how we read history about uh, what were property rights like before the Great Enrichment. And I, I just disagree. I just think that property rights were not very well enforced for a large portion of the population. There were sometimes rule of law for the elite, uh, but not for everybody. So that's a, that's a disagreement that we have
0: and when you say property rights not enforced you're including in that maybe especially just the idea that the government restricts your rights of owning property the government and trading and so on
1: the government doesn't defend your right to property or it can be taken away from you uh by the more powerful um i just see the modern liberal order as fundamentally limit on power. I mean Mm -hmm. it's a limit on Mm -hmm. on what historically the the elite or the powerful have been able to do to the marginalized. It's interesting to me uh when people talk about um kind of modern liberalism and by that of course you and I know we're not talking about 21st century politicalism but, but modern liberalism uh it's not an expression of power it's a limit on power and that's what makes it work. And that's what opens it up to substantial economic growth Uh, because entrepreneurial initiative, the innovator, uh, the person that figures out a better way to do things, uh, what she calls trade tested betterment, uh, becomes important.
0: Yeah. And all of these rules and procedures surrounding um, property and uh, its regulation are often denominated as institutions. Right. So you're basically saying institutions were different earlier and she tends to insist that they weren't so different and it was the beliefs and the rhetoric and the moral authorization that changed significantly.
1: Now some of the time I'm not clear you know um, she's a good friend and so you know I can't tell if we're just having fun over a minor disagreement or if this is a, a big sort of a picture but she's objected to some of the kind of what we call neo-institutional literature. And she particularly objects to the idea that all you have to do is just add institutions. Or she says, add institutions and stir, and everything will turn out well. Well, she certainly is correct that institutions need to be grounded in some whole ideas about who people are, what they do, all of those sorts of things. So in that sense,
0: right. It's it's no small thing to add institutions, add the right institutions and stir.
1: Right. And certainly that, (laughs) and as we've seen in, uh, with the fall of the wall and, you know, people trying to advise the former communist countries, it was supposedly going to be very straightforward. Uh, here's the Western institutions, here's how you put them in, and society will turn out to be well-organized and you'll get economic growth. Well, There's successes and there's failures, and there's so it's it's a much more complicated situation than that. And I would say belief structures. She's really she's correct. Belief structures are absolutely crucial to how this works.
0: By the way, you kind of made a remark about 21st century liberalism, Mm -hmm. and I would just say don't give up on 21st century liberalism. The 21st century isn't over yet. You're right. anyhow there's a couple other questions um, you say some a few a little bit about Calvin and about Theodore Beza
1: mm-hmm.
0: are they in some do you, in, can they be interpreted as in some ways proto liberal
1: yeah most of the people that are making arguments in this set uh, in this time I list as being important uh, for the you know, for getting in place uh, the ideas of a, of a liberal order. Now, Calvin's interesting because, you know, most people would think of him as a lot of totalitarian tendencies, and he has those. And, you know, he doesn't mind seeing people in prison whom he disagrees with. Um, he actually seems to to sign off, in a way, on the execution of of a heretic. Servetus. Uh, yeah, Cerberus. Uh he would, seems like he would, wouldn't mind if the city of Geneva would be kind of enforcing the rules about uh, a Calvinistic religion. So on the one hand, he has these, you may call it totalitarian tendencies, but on the other hand, he keeps talking about this freedom of conscience. And as he moves on, as, it, as, it, as crises come along, it seems that he says, well, if you're going to have freedom of conscience, you're going to have the ability to decide, there's some there's some other things that go with that. There's some other liberties that would seem to go along with that. So he's a mixed figure, but I see him as important. And then other Calvinists, uh, uh, Theodore Beza, I think he's important. Johann Athusius in uh, the Netherlands just articulates what for me is just a, a great conception of the rights of the human person. So. I find the Calvinists generally making uh, good arguments on the mm-hmm. side of the liberal order. Now, are they consistent? No. They, mm-hmm. every once in a while, get involved in using coercion uh, against heresy. So, uh, but this is this is a period of time in which this is all being worked out, and in which uh, the state and the church have been commingled, or there's a lot of submergence, as you say. And so, uh, it's not surprising that nobody comes out kind of fully formed with kind of the, the modern with the idea of um, a fully sure. constituted liberal order.
0: Yeah, I mean Calvin, in a way, was a politician. He kind of had a city city state to run, right? I yeah. mean, you can't expect too much from uh, you know real politique. Um but, but I gather that you know he, he actually argued that maybe we didn't need restrictions on interest rates and other things that were about mm-hmm. sort of freedom of enterprise, right?
1: Right, and so he was uh, more freedom of enterprise in the economic sphere. Uh, he thought that church governance should be kind of from the bottom up, which then turns out to be counter to a lot of political philosophy, and you start thinking about that. And then I would say that for the Calvinists. They kept facing these crises. You know, there's uh, the religious wars. Before that, there's the the Dutch revolt uh, against Spain. Um, There's, you know, the English Revolution. And in each of these cases, it would seem that these theological thinkers would say, well, you know, we've really got an issue here. And if we're going to protect religious liberty, there's a lot of other liberties that we have to think about. So it keeps growing into the idea of, of a constitution, of uh, juror areas in which we're going to try to have to do something about enforcing these sorts of things. So it's a gradual process. Uh, but I I do see them, you could call them, you know, proto liberals. There's a lot, a lot of stuff that they write that fits with that. Some of the things that they do and say that doesn't.
0: Far out. So wh- what do you have planned next for this? Is, is it going, is there a follow up or something? No, I don't,
1: I don't think so. I mean, I kind of, I, 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 wanted to, I wanted this to become a part of the economic history uh, debate. Uh, you know, that's, uh, I just thought it was an important lacuna, a place where that we had ignored some important sorts of things. And there were quite a few people writing about the importance of ideas, McCloskey among them, uh, Abner Greif, uh, you know, Joe Mokir. Uh, all of these people. So I felt like there was one area that just needed a little more work. Uh, I don't have any other particular plans. It took me a long time to get this one published. And so at this point, I'm uh, going back and working more on kind of small scale property rights issues that, uh, you know, say on the American West, uh, those sorts of things. So uh, (coughs) I don't have any. um, I want to see what people think about this. I would like to yeah, hold up to scrutiny, and uh, yeah. I appreciate you putting giving me a chance to air my ideas because
0: yeah.
1: I don't know if I'm right or not, and I would like to he- hear from some other people uh, who are very thoughtful contributors in this area that in the past haven't made as much as made as much of ideas. For instance, Jared Rubin is a very thoughtful uh, economic historian. writes about religion and history. Um, he has a book on kind of the rise of the West. And um, Jared doesn't think that ideology, say, the differences be- between Islam and Christianity were of any importance. Well, uh, I'm throwing out um, the country, you know, th- throwing this one out and saying, well, maybe they are. So mm-hmm. it's people like that whom I consider to be serious uh, yeah. scholars. I've already uh, interacted with Deirdre McClowski, and uh, I think you saw some of that exchange in which he says, You do a great job of making an argument, but it's mistaken. (laughs) You're wrong. So uh, that's where I'm going to leave it for now and then I'll just see what happens uh, after that.
0: Oh, well, well, putting these things, big pieces together, I think it actually enriches the pieces. So I think it's a really great contribution. Are there any final thoughts on the paper you want to? I
1: don't think so, Dan. I just appreciate the opportunity to talk with you about them and um, I appreciate all the authors who've thought about this you know, and all the people that I could draw up on. I, once I got started doing my reading on intellectual history, which I'd not done a lot of before, there is a lot out there. So I, I have read a lot of works, uh, did a lot of thinking, gave a few presentations at different conferences on it. Um, but no, I think I, the, the, I'll just let the piece speak for itself and I appreciate the chance to talk all to right. you.
0: All right, well, thank you, everyone, and thank you again, PJ.
1: Okay.